Good morning, everyone. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us this morning. I'm Peter Fahm, director of the Africa Center here at the Atlantic Council, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to this launch uh, of our uh, latest report uh, uh, this morning, and uh, thank you for joining us. Just a few, if you'll permit me, a few words about the Africa Center. Uh, the Atlantic Council's Africa Center was created in 2009 with a mandate to help transform uh, U.S. and our partner uh, relationships with Africa from being one of driven by a view of crises and assistance to one of geopolitical partnership and increasingly uh, helping build through practical solutions and analysis and awareness of greater prosperity, mutual prosperity, and the prosperity and potential of economic potential of Africa. And as part of that mandate, we're delighted to uh, have this particular series of reports, which we're very grateful to uh, the OCP Foundation, the OCP Policy Center, for partnering with us on sustainable development uh, in Africa and some of those conditions uh, that make that possible. I'm joined here today by Aubrey Ruby, uh, who is a senior fellow in our Africa Center, uh, co-founder of the Africa uh, Expert Network, and a number of other uh, uh, veteran before joining us of efforts to invest in Africa and responsible for over $2 billion in U.S. investments on the continent of Africa. I'm also delighted and honored to be joined this morning by Uchi Orji, uh, the CEO and president of Nigeria Sovereign Investment Authority, who uh, would like to have him comment uh, on our report and react to parts of it. He uh, brings a rich experience to his current posting, previous to which he was managing director uh, in New York of uh, uh, the, uh, I don't want to get the two banks mixed up, yeah, at UBS Securities. I didn't want to mix the UBS with the JP Morgan, uh, his work with JP Morgan before that, and then Goldman before that. So uh, very delighted to, to have him with us. Uh, we make this more of a conversation than our usual, because I think it's an important thing. Let me just kick it off with a few comments and then turn over to Aubrey to discuss our, our, our findings. Uh, as you all know, uh, commodity prices have decreased dramatically, especially over the course of the, the last year, uh, especially oil, iron ore, copper and platinum in particular, but other commodities as well. And African economies have been especially dependent upon exports to those commodities have suffered accordingly. Uh, Angola, 94% of the exports being oil. Uh, Nigeria, 80% of its ex exports uh, being oil. Zambia, 70% uh, being copper. But it's been a perfect storm, not just the downturn in commodity prices, but also the downturn in emerging markets, affecting demand as well. China, where growth is now expected to be at best over the next few years, 6.5%. Now that's good by some, most standards, but China's used to rates uh, well, uh, well above in the double digits. Uh, uh, and China uh, is responsible for taking in 13% of African exports up to date. Brazil, where aside from the current political crises and the vote this coming Sunday on the impeachment or not of the president, a country that uh, took in a number of African commodity ex exports, the outlook is pretty grim. 
a downturn of almost 4% this year uh, expected. Russia with the, uh, a downturn of 3.7%. Uh, with the possible exception of India, the, major, the rest of the BRICs don't have much room for, uh, for growth in the coming years, and thus their demand for African products. And then as a result of all this, this perfect storm, uh, Africa, the continent as a whole, is expecting growth of only about 3.8% uh, uh, for last year and pretty much the same for this year before possibly bouncing back in a few years' time. And we've seen the knock-on effects of this in currency and uh, we'll discuss later, of course, uh, everyone has seen the news in uh, just the last few days of the, the $2 billion loan and currency swap uh, Nigeria has negotiated with China and, uh, and uh, to help cover the, the budget gap. So with that, I'll turn it over to Aubrey to discuss uh, Take it further. Thank you, Peter. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to look out and see so many friends uh, and people who have long time worked in the Africa business investment space uh, here in the US. Um, you know, the report, we, we named it Embracing Impact. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Instead of embracing for impact, we see it as an opportunity for a lot of African countries to uh, embrace this period of, of slow growth in order to make the kind of reforms necessary for medium and long-term sustainable growth. Um, and it's really a mixed bag in terms of the impact. While Peter gave some sense of the macro and average impact across Africa, we're seeing a divergence among the countries that are, that are commodity exporters versus those that are importers. So um, this report is quite optimistic for the East African countries, uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, Rwanda, um, and some of the West African being Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire. You might have seen that Cote d'Ivoire has now surpassed Nigeria as the uh, largest destination for in incoming investment in Africa this year. Uh, and I think that mixed bag uh, experience is going to be an interesting one for the convergence versus divergence that we see in, in Africa during this period. So while uh, China is the largest destination for African exports, consuming about 13% of African exports uh, on average, if you look at Kenya, for example, only 1% of Kenyan exports go to China. So their exposure to the emerging market downturn is different. Also, if you look at a Kenya and an Ethiopia, one-fifth of their import bill is oil. So the cost of oil being below $40 a barrel really benefits them, uh, and they are generally more diversified in terms of their economic output. So really, we will see stronger growth in Ethiopia, in particular in this coming year. They're looking at somewhere slightly less than 10%, somewhere between maybe 8 and 10%, depending. So uh, you will see a mixed performance, whereas we have Nigeria that is coming in uh, at the lowest growth rate in 16 years. And so really, we have an opportunity as those who are encouraging reforms in African markets to push for them at this time, because nothing like urgency uh, to really spur them on. And a couple things that I think are inspiring in this area are that the East Africans, through something called the Northern Corridor Integration Projects, are really attacking some of the inefficiencies in the uh, interregional trade system. So for example, uh, the transit times from Mombasa to Kigali, uh, they used to be 22 days, now it's down to five, and that's with no new investment. 
And so what that tells us is that there is a lot of um, inefficiency in the system and growth to be had uh, from attacking those inefficiencies. Another example out of this NCIP process that I talked about between the East African countries is that they've uh, reduced, they eliminated roaming fees on calls in uh, between the, the EAC countries, so Kenya, Nigeria, or Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, and Tanzania, and Burundi, and what that did in then a two-month period is it quadrupled call volume from uh, Rwanda to Kenya. So these things have very quick return periods. Uh, it's not something like a hydro uh, dam that you have to wait five years to be constructed or a railroad. Um, and likewise, we'd like to see in, in Nigeria, for example, uh, the very costly fuel subsidies that have been on the books for uh, decades being removed during this period of, of low oil prices. So instead of just not paying them, let's get them off the books altogether. And I think there are many other areas for uh, addressing inefficiencies in the system now that there's a, a growing need to search for growth. Among the, um, among the African countries. So um, I, I would like to take a special look at Nigeria because we're honored to have um, uh, Uche here with us today and, and to really look and see what can be done in Nigeria given its uh, current situation of a perfect storm that includes low oil prices, which means a budget deficit, even in, this, in the face of exp expanding spending on infrastructure, so hence the China trip in part is an uh, infrastructure-based initiative, a forex uh, constriction, uh, and all of that coming to, to really increase the pressure on both investors investing in Nigeria, but also local Nigerian businesses. So um, with that, I'd like to hear from Uche just a little bit about the, the kind of experience right now and how uh, the Sovereign Wealth Fund in particular is looking at this period and planning its investment horizon based on this period. Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, first of all, I want to thank the uh, council for giving me the opportunity to um, be part of this and, and be also be able to explain to you how we uh, see the current situation. But first of all, I, I will say that um, I've been running the Nigeria Sovereign Investment Authority from its inception uh, in 2012. And uh, what's happening now, as significant as it is, uh, does not come to us as a surprise. And, and the reason is, look, we've had prior to this uh, almost um, eight years of commodity price boom, apart from a couple of periods of interruption, 2008 when it dropped briefly in 2010. But since then, it's been a straight line. So at some point, we all knew that this was going to happen. Um, it also just happened to be a point where we've gone from $110 a barrel to $40 a barrel, even 27 at a point, in the middle of an election transition. So regardless of what was happening to oil, the fact that we're going from one political party to another was going to bring a period of uncertainty. And so it's all happening at the same time. The, the good news, however, is that uh, for those who really want to invest, things are a lot cheaper than they were <laughs> two years ago. Um, and I say this very seriously because the NSIA, which is the organization I run, we look at ourselves um, the same way any other investor would look at Nigeria. And so for two years, almost three years, um, we have a 40% of our fund dedicated to infrastructure. Uh, we refuse to invest um, for two reasons. One, the preparation process took a long time but more importantly, uh, to the subject of valuation. 
Now we are beginning to invest aggressively domestically. Uh, things are looking a little bit more realistic, but more importantly, the government policies today that we see are very supportive of that. And I'll explain to that, explain that in a couple of minutes. Uh, the first thing the government announced as part of their policy response to the current environment was the creation of a Nigeria Infrastructure Fund. Uh, the Nigeria Infrastructure Fund is going to be a fund that will be legally under the auspices of the NSIA, um, which is the organization that I run, but it's supposed to be much bigger than the size of the fund that I run. Now, whether we get to the number or not is a separate conversation, but the reality is that it says one thing, the government recognizes the need to invest in infrastructure aggressively as a way to diversify the economy. The organization that I run has an infrastructure fund. It's very tiny, it's about $600 million, $700 million in it at the moment, focused on five areas. We're focused on transport infrastructure, toll roads, toll bridges. We're focused on agriculture infrastructure, everything from the commodities exchange right down to silos and storage and, and a network of warehousing infrastructure. Uh, we're focused on healthcare. Now, somebody might say, why is healthcare infrastructure? It's one of the areas where we spend a huge amount of money in Nigeria, and four areas of therapy, actually. 80% of the outward spending on healthcare is on cardio, is on renal, is on cancer, and is on orthopedics. Areas where we can easily address. The third, fourth area we're investing in is in power infrastructure. Now, electricity has capped at 5,000 megawatts uh, generation, uh, uh, transmission through the entire country. Uh, with as much as 19,000 megawatts uh, uh, capability for generation, but the transmission network can only carry about 5,000. Why no one invested in this the last 20, 30, 40 years is something that I just can't get my head around. But the good news is that is an area where the government plans to tackle as well. And the final area is housing. Um, housing is one area that I believe not only will it solve the problem we have today, it will actually create a lot of jobs. We look at housing as something that, um, you know, you build a house, you, have, you employ a plumber, you employ a carpenter, you employ a painter, you employ a mason. Uh, Nigeria today has 16 million units of housing deficit, which I think is something that also creates an avenue for investment. The reality is this, look, um, there's the two ways to look at the situation we're in now. The one way to look at it is this is a great crisis that a country must take advantage of. Um, and do something very meaningful about it. The, the other way to look at it is everyone just says, it's just too difficult and let's stay away. That would be a mistake. And the reason is because if you look at Nigeria the last 10, 15 years or 20 years, whenever we have a crisis, opportunity opens up. But at the first sign of inflection, it closes very, very quickly. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a real estate, piece of real estate we've been looking at, we've been negotiating for the last 18 months. And my stance was too expensive, too expensive. And um, within the last three months, the asking price has been cut by 35%. And we're like, okay, now we can talk. <laughs> so the point though is, look, it's, it is an incredible opportunity to invest in Nigeria. And most people will miss this opportunity in so many ways, partly because at the same time, the reasons for investing is compelling. The reasons not to invest are also compelling. Because everyone says, oh, hang it a minute. How do I get my money out of the country? You will eventually get your money out of the country. We've been here before. I saw this in 96. I saw this, and then 96 was the year I left Nigeria to go to business school. And uh, it was horrible. You know? uh, but I will also say that two or three years later, uh, within two years after that, policy, a few policy tweaks here and there, it was easy to get your money out of the country. At the same time, um, the one thing that worries me the most is insecurity and social strife. You have a population of 180 million people. 
uh, of which 90 million are under the age of 19. Um, we have to create at least 2 million jobs a year to keep the youth employed. Um, that is a risk. It's a risk partly because uh, if you don't address it, people get very angry, and before you know it, social strife becomes an issue. The good news is the government recognizes this and are working very hard on trying to identify, address, address this issue. Um, and this is part of the reason why this infrastructure spend is massive for the country. Roads are easy to build. You don't need to import a lot of the materials to build roads, and that is something that gets the youth employed. Agriculture is quite easy to have revenue coming through within a year or two. These are also things that can absorb a lot of youth. So all I'm saying is this, look, there is no way to sugarcoat it. It's difficult at the moment. The good news, however, is that valuations start to look really, really compelling, and it's in everything. We've gone from a period where we couldn't find value in seven out of 10 things we look at to actually being able to find value in nine out of 10 things that we look at at the moment. The other good news is the government is very keen to address it. The policy response in the budget is very focused on infrastructure, which will diversify the economy. The third, and probably what, something that is very important to all of you, is the fight against corruption. It's very important. It's very important the country gets it right. The good news is I'm starting to also see there's, there's a point where we're going to draw a line under this, which I think should start to make it easy for people to, to come in. We were very conscious about this when we started running the NSIA, and which is why when we started, we took time to make sure our corporate governance was actually done properly. First was accountability. We made sure that our processes were done properly. We made sure we had an audit firm that you know, was highly recognized, and we actually go through an audit every three months. We publish the results, um, which I think is a little too much because <laughs> you have auditors rolling in and out. But, but this is Nigeria, and one had to be very careful, and one had to be sure that at least people can see what is being done with the fund. The second thing was processes. Uh, investment process, uh, operational processes. We took time to publish everything. Our investment policy statements are on the website, how we invest, what we invest in. Um, it's on the website, and people can actually read through that. The third thing we, we spent time um, uh, to do was to make sure that our board was as involved in everything we did. For every investment we made, particularly in infrastructure, the board is involved in three out of the four steps. Now, a bit too much. But it couldn't be too much because, again, this is Nigeria. Everyone turns on their security lights once Nigeria is mentioned. Uh, but the reality is that these are some of the things we did. And I expect that my organization will become a signal that the government is serious about fiscal discipline, the government is serious about investing in infrastructure and diversifying the economy, and that Nigeria is ready to do things differently. And this is probably what we're trying to achieve. So right now, yes, it's challenging. But the reality is that right now is also an, an, an opportunity as good as it was in 99, as it was in 2008. And I think as recently as it was in 2010. So that's my response to it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Uche. And thank you for uh, now giving us uh, now what you do at NSIA, but uh, also the assurance that uh, there, the opportunity within the, the current moment of crisis. Uh, seizing on that opportunity, Aubrey and I offer in this report a number of recommendations. They're in the report. But I just want to uh, we want to highlight a few of them. I think the first recommendation uh, we make to African governments and countries is diversify, diversify, diversify. And what's interesting is there are some good stories we don't have to, within Africa itself. A, uh, a wonderful example we, do, we make a case study of in our study is Morocco's efforts at diversification. Uh, it's a country that no single export accounts for more than 10% of, uh, of its uh, export earnings. Uh, 
And in recent years, a number of interesting programs have developed which build upon this diversified economy. One is an emphasis on a part of Africa that is not uh, often emphasized enough, which is the development of agriculture. Morocco's Green Plan, which uh, aims to employ 1.5 million people, especially in uh, difficult rural areas, but also by building high value added to agricultural products uh, in recent years. And there are different emphases for different regions of Africa that one can look at, but it's something worth looking at. I know the new president of the African Development Bank, Agana Adesina, emphasizes, uh, coming from his ag agronomy background, the importance of agricultural development. Another thing Morocco is engaging in is uh, renewable energies. I think it's uh, worth uh, taking a good look. Uh, just a few months ago, uh, King Mohammed VI inaugurated the, the Noor uh, installation, which is the largest single concentrated uh, solar plant anywhere on the globe. And the country has a very ambitious plan that's on target to meet that by the end of this decade, which is four years away, that 42% of its energy is going to be from re renewable sources, solar uh, and wind. And then you know, finally, the building up of the tourism sector, which is already the most important tourism sector in Northwest Africa. So a very diversified economy. And the story is going to be different, but other regions of Africa, we see nascent stories of diversification and examples of this South-South cooperation that, uh, that I think uh, will be very interesting. And I'll bring, pick up the next recommendation. Yeah, so uh, the next recommendation really comes for, for, and it affects most of us in this room, which is what can the US do during this period of time? And I think our biggest recommendation there is to sustain high-level commercial diplomacy. Um, it's no doubt that this, uh, this Obama administration, um, his second term in particular, has seen an increase in commercial diplomacy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S. and Africa. Uh, I really have to give a lot of credit to uh, Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker in particular, uh, really putting commerce back on the, on the map and, and pushing for uh, more trade missions, high-level interactions. And what that has shown to me as someone who's been advising companies on investing in African markets is that it's bringing whole new groups of people to the table. Uh, so Power Africa in particular, I'm now, when I go to Power Africa events, meeting companies that are Californian companies that are experts in solar or Michigan companies that are biogas experts. And these, these groups of companies are looking at African opportunities are the first time, I've never met them before. And that's an exciting thing. It's not just the kind of handful of, of fortune uh, 50 companies that are, have been in Africa for decades, like P&G, Coca-Cola. While we need all of those, um, we need a new batch of, of investors and new batch of um, commercial partnerships. And so as we look to our election and the kind of future of uh, US Africa policy, I think all of us here in this room who play a, an important role in the advocacy scene really have to push for that continued high-level commercial diplomacy. Um, I am always skeptical because, you know, if you look at the budgets the U.S. has for investing in Africa or supporting investors, the budgets are, are minuscule if there. And, and Power Africa itself doesn't have a lot of money. And so I've even been one to say, well, what, how is this going to do anything? 
but I've been uh, been convinced over the last few words, last few years, that the power of the, the convening power and the kind of power of the pulpit that aspect is very important for giving comfort to American investors who have historically been uh, more risk adverse when they look to Africa than other regions. So I think uh, the report has a mix of, of recommendations, but those two in particular come away. And to, to speaking to uh, Peter's comments on Morocco, I think the important thing uh, to note there is they've done that diversification while being uh, home to the largest phosphate reserves in the world. So I think it is a, a, an example for an Angola or a Nigeria because they do have the commodity dependence potential, but have worked through it. Um, so I just have a question for, for Uche based on these uh, recommendations. One, um, how does NS, NSIA play a role in the diversification point outside of infrastructure? Um, and maybe you can speak to your mandate to invest outside of Africa, I mean outside of Nigeria and outside of Africa in general. Um, and does that bring diversification? And then how would you like to see uh, the US engage in commercial diplomacy vis-a-vis -vis Nigeria or other entities uh, like NSIA? Sure. Thank you very much. <clears throat> um, I, uh, I happen to have uh, stopped in Morocco for two days on my way to this event. And, and it was quite uh, uh, an amazing story, to, to be honest. Uh, a, a, a section mate of mine at uh, a business school uh, went back to Morocco after, after business school, and he's a member of the parliament. His wife runs a, a business school in Morocco. And so I spent two days with them, um, uh, also to attend the conference. Uh, three things struck me about the Morocco story, and there's a lot to learn for, for Nigeria. And I'll probably talk to the lessons and what we're doing along those lines. Uh, the first is that the whole diversification has been in the last 15 years or something like that. So, you know, brand new spanking infrastructure for ports, for roads, and uh, uh, remarkable, remarkable. Um, in, in Nigeria, um, you know, sometimes you wish you started this thing we're trying to do now 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, you know, if we, if we had put a fund together 40 years ago when most of our peers were doing it, and it will be significantly bigger. Um, but enough of looking back, let's look ahead. So what are we doing? Um, first of all, and I'm not going to answer your question in the order you give, I'm just going to address a whole bunch of things. My observations are as follows. One is Nigeria needs equity, not debt. Um, and we don't see a lot of equity investment. And, and my sense is that uh, that is something that is necessary. Uh, the government has put together many new institutions to make sure that your investments are as secure and as transparent as possible. So in power, there's everything from a new electricity regulatory commission to a bulk electricity trader that actually uh, signs your PPAs. The processes are transparent. And, and, and so I think that is the first thing missing. And I was struck by how low the equity investments are in the country. And the, the capital formation process in the country is actually very, very poor. And I think that is something that needs to be addressed. So to the extent anybody wants to engage, that is one way where you can be, first of all, make decent amounts of returns, but also impact the economy. The thing that scares people the most about Nigeria, my observation, is partnership. Who do you partner with? You know, people come in and they ask all sorts of questions, and you read, you read the newspapers, and um, people, and it's a difficult environment. People are very entrepreneurial. They're smart. You know, they're not, um, 
They're not what you expect. I don't know Nigeria as well as I should because I spent most of my professional life between Europe and the United States. But I was stunned by just how um, entrepreneurial people are. Um, and, and, but the first question I keep getting people asking is, who do you partner with? And so one of the things we did at the NSIA, and that's to answer your question about what role NSIA can play, was to offer ourselves up as a partner of choice. Um, and even when we don't invest or co-invest with people, we should be able to play a role in guiding you um, and when you come. And I probably spend 25% of my time just fielding calls and advising people on, uh, on, on where to go and how to invest. Uh, we should charge for that, actually, at some point, but we don't. <laughs> um, but, um, but the point here is very simple. So, so, but we also decided to formalize that. So we created a, we, we created a, we, we're just about to close our first co-investment vehicle, um, which is in real estate. Um, so we, we decided to target five co-investors, four co-investors, with ourselves being one, so five investors to create a vehicle, $100 million each. Um, and then the vehicle gets leveraged. And we'll, it, it's not a lot, but in today's market in Nigeria, $750 million, which is our target, uh, will do a lot, of, uh, a lot of good in the country. And half of that will be spent on uh, creating liquidity events, buying existing buildings and buying rents. And then the other half will be on greenfield uh, infrastructure. Now, if that is successful, we're looking to create the next vehicle in power and industrial and then the third one in agriculture and healthcare. So these are the three vehicles we're looking to create. But the first one hopefully gets closed by the end of June. Um, and, and there's already a long list of things in the pipeline. And so if anybody's looking to, to partner, uh, unfortunately, we're only in, in five areas uh, at the moment, uh, which is areas I mentioned, agriculture, healthcare, transport infrastructure, mainly roads and bridges, um, uh, uh, real estate, and agriculture. Now. Uh, to one other point that was raised in the question um, as to how um, this all kind of all ties together in terms of, of, uh, of government revenue. But the first thing about Nigeria that strikes you is that the economy is actually, and this may sound like heresy, but the economy is actually diversified. Um, but what's not diversified is government revenue. And also what's not diversified is export revenue. Um, if, I know many of you probably know the answer to this, but um, uh, I asked this question in, in Morocco on Monday when I was giving a lecture at the business school. I asked them how many of them thought that Nigeria's GDP um, and its relationship to oil was more than 50%. And half, 75% of the room raised their hands. Um, uh, how many of them thought it was 30% or lower? Nobody raised their hands. But the reality is that oil and the entire sector is under 17% of GDP. Um, so the question becomes, how does it... How, how is it that government revenue is 80% dependent on oil? And how is it that export revenue is almost 90% dependent on oil? What's, what's the problem? What's missing? So a few things we're missing. Obviously, non, number one, people don't pay enough taxes. Customs collection is very poor. Uh, there's a lot of corruption through the whole process. And so what happens is government depends only on this one commodity they can monitor. And even then, that gets stolen as well. So, so you must do something about that. Um, uh, you must do something. And I, I coming from the U.S., I was stunned by, you know, how much taxes I paid in the country relative to my peers who also run big organizations for the government. Like, how, how is it I pay this level of three times what you pay in taxes? And, and the reality is that the tax code actually makes it easy for people to avoid taxes. 
So Maybe it was modeled off the U.S. one. <laughs> if, it was, if, if we got this close as the U.S. one, I'm sure it would be very fine. But in truth, about this, taxes contribute less than 6% of GDP, which, is, which for Nigeria compared to South Africa, which is also quite low at 13%, uh, 14% of GDP was, was significantly low. So community is something about that. So I think you're going to see that actually start to provide some significant support to the budget. Now, in terms of uh, export revenue diversification, uh, the truth is this, um, there is a lot of demand domestically for what we can produce. And I saw something in the report when I was looking at it over before we, we got into this. There's actually a beginning of an appreciation of domestic brands yeah, yeah. in Nigeria. Uh, people are willing to buy clothes made by local tailors. People are willing to oh, yeah, buy... They think they're better. For exactly. example, Nigerians think that local made clothes are better than what they can they're get more stylish. Yeah, yeah. Sure. You should have been wearing your national. I am wearing one actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but the point though is, is there's there's a lot of appreciation for for yeah. for domestic manufactured goods, mm -hmm. and there's a program now um, um, driving that, and and I think to the extent that people start to think of ways to invest, uh, partnering with local brands is actually something that people really significantly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a fruit juice drink called uh, Chivita. And the funny thing about Chivita is it was started by a, a Dutch-German company, uh, but it's mostly local content, and Nigerians actually believe it's a local company because everything they do is local. A recent survey I studied, Nigerians actually will drink a juice out of Chivita than one made by Coca-Cola. Of course, Coca-Cola is now buying 40% of Chivita. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure how we're going to see that in the next uh, survey. But the same was for uh, KFC. When KFC entered Nigeria, they had yeah. a much more difficult time because they found that the local brand, Chicken Republic, was much stronger yes. than they had anticipated. That's correct. Um, and you're even seeing similar things in Ghana around locally made uh, chocolates, for example. And so I think it's a big opportunity. But you remember there was recently this uh, campaign on Twitter called... Um, Buy, buy Niger to save the Naira, right, right. the idea of buying locally. And the, the, the exchange and the dialogue that was happening on Twitter around it was very amusing because some people were saying, buy what? Yeah. You know, so there's partly uh, a need to create more products uh, and build on those strong brands. Sure, but sure. I think that uh, even some of the research that we did in this report shows that even multinationals looking to the market have to compete with strong local brands. That is correct. And probably the last thing I'll probably touch on is, is the, for Nigeria, I mean, I've, I've heard the point about removal of wealth subsidy. Now, I don't speak for the government, and I'll probably take that feedback uh, to the government, but the truth is they know this. Uh, my view, though, is that the ultimate uh, impulse substitution for Nigeria is to invest in refineries yeah. and invest in fertilizers. I, I just read this morning that fuel subsidy cost the country $1.8 billion a year. Now, you can make the argument all you want about how more efficient it is to refine in Holland than shipping to Nigeria. The reality is that it is actually a way to save the limited foreign exchange that we have today. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, I, was, I read that 30 to 40 percent of Nigeria's uh, foreign uh, dollar revenue was spent on importing petroleum products. Um, again, it's back to the core Africa issue of selling raw materials and importing refined and imported value-added products. So the, count, the real, real discussion is the ultimate, the ultimate import substitution is, is, is in refineries and it's in, in fertilizer. It, it makes no common sense to flare gas and import fertilizer. Uh, it just makes no sense to sell raw materials, crude oil, and import refined products. Now, 
At a certain point, the economics might make sense if oil was $120 a barrel. But at $30, $40 a barrel, uh, the opposite is, is true. And, and the funny thing is, I went to Morocco, and they were like, Morocco is booming. And I'm like, why? They said, well, energy price is low. I'm like, OK, fine. You know, um, I wish we could say the same thing. Uh, because you know, for Morocco, being a country that doesn't have any uh, crude oil at all, they import this, this Nigeria, Nigeria selling it, it's, it's, a, it's, a it's, it's a challenge for us at the moment. So, so, so um, here's an area where we think if anybody has a solution and is willing to co-invest directly, it's something that really is worth considering. The government at the moment is rolling out the red carpet for people that are willing to invest in these two areas, fertilizer and, uh, and refinery. And then finally, it's industrialization. Uh, I mean, uh, it's everything from basic materials, basic chemicals, um, textiles. Um, and, and the good news is that there's a lot of policy support now to make sure that uh, uh, people make those investments. So to the extent that, um, you know, as you're looking at all these areas, uh, you're looking for you know, guidance or partnerships, uh, the NSI is, is open and willing to, to work with you. Thank you very much, Uche. Uh, the, and I think we now open up the conversation to yeah. all of you. And uh, if you would wait for the microphone. The gentleman over here, and then, and then please, if you'd be so kind as to identify yourself. And Thank you very much, uh, and Lion Council. Rob Colarina. Uh, we're at Investment Group via Family Office Structure. Lucci, good to see you again. And my Rob, question. you got to speak up a little. We're still having a hard sure. time hearing you. Thanks. Sure, Aubrey. Um, good to see you again. Uchi, you mentioned this concept of co-investment, um, which is interesting. Could you speak a little bit under this theme of, of emerging market downturn and return? Are you all getting a little bit more active in terms of corporate governance and in terms of, let's say, if one was willing to co-invest, let's say even Nigeria, are you all getting on boards? Are you all getting on how to ensure the uh, either risk mitigation or equity upside of a co-investment with you all? Thank you. Let's, let's take uh, a few and then take them together. And Sula had one here. Thank you very much. And that was a little bit like red meat um, sort of baited out there for me on the housing side and particularly on the equity side, so I really can't resist. I couldn't agree more that equity is the very big issue um, on the continent. To give you an example, we did a project in South Africa um, which we have just exited from at a 28% IRR. We developed 10,000 units of housing and all it took was $10 million to unlock that project. And that was what was missing. And that project was languishing for years and years. And it is extraordinary to me to see what was an open piece of felt, which was a buffer zone between Soweto and White, um, Rodeput in the old apartheid structure, now being filled by this very vibrant community, filled with 10,000 units of housing that will be ultimately there. About 6,000 are built so far. Churches, parks, mosques. Um, retail centers, creches, and the like. And it really just is extraordinary that there's such a lack of equity and equity um, appetite that that's really kind of what was needed to unlock it. Having said that, finding equity is really hard and getting equity mobilized is really hard, particularly in Africa and particularly when you're dealing with something that's kind of seen to be a little outside of the normal realm. And the thing that's always worried me about Nigeria on the housing side is twofold. On the one end, on the development side, it's really just, I mean, anywhere in the world, you just had to read the New York Times lead story on Trump last week, Monday, to know the kind of shenanigans and the bad 
you know, company that even the most developed economies, developers keep, and the kind of, you know, um, malfeasance that goes on. Um, in that particular case, we're talking about, you know, convicted felons in this deal with oligarch money. You know, and so it's it's ripe um, for incredibly complicated and hard governance. The other issue is around mortgage finance. And mortgage finance in Nigeria is very limited. And one of the things that I think that is the issue is that state by state, you've got very uneven title registry enforcement of lien. And so if you could, and I think it's a really great shorthand um, mortgage finance availability for the development of where we are. So if you could talk a little bit to how one um, deals, because you're talking about the supply side, which is critical and very hard, but also the demand side in terms of what's happening on the mortgage finance front, I'd really be most grateful. Thanks. Thanks. So we'll take one, one more gentleman yeah. here. Yeah. Hi, uh, I had a question sort of dovetailing on the theme of uh, equity as opposed identify to... Yourself. Please identify yourself. Yeah. Oh, I'm cool. sorry. Uh, my name is Mel Ude, uh, independent consultant. Uh, uh, a question with regards to the theme of equity over debt. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the Coca-Cola investment in Chavita, for example. And oftentimes, uh, foreign conglomerates, when they seek to enter into the, uh, markets like Nigeria or elsewhere, will seek as a risk mitigation mechanism or strategy of investment to make a large investment in an existing local player. And that's obviously um, a value additive part of the development story insofar as transferring of managerial expertise, technology, etc. But what are some of the institutional uh, infrastructure that's being put in place to encourage sort of greenfield foreign direct investment? Because I think long term, uh, it's in the larger interests of the of these economies in Africa that they have the, uh, new capital going into new sectors of the economy rather than simply recapitalizing existing uh, enterprises. Thank sure. you. Sure. Excellent question. Thank you. Question. Take, the, yeah. take those and then we'll, we'll do take, another round. Yeah, we'll take the next round after. Sure. Which I, they're all on you, but uh, <laughs> we'll help, we'll chime in where you need please, help. Please, please, <laughs> I, I will need help. Um, all right. To the. Um, so the question about corporate governance and risk mitigation um, uh, in the co-investment vehicles. Um, I, I will say um, um, three things. One, one this, uh, so for the real estate one, it's actually gonna be um, partly an offshore registered vehicle and a local registered vehicle. And, and I think we have 60% of our investments actually across 17 countries with as much as uh, 75%, 70 percent of that in the United States. We have two uh, uh, vehicles that are registered here in the United States, which we have used to invest in, uh, make direct investments uh, um, in an aircraft leasing company and make investments in, in private equity. We bought a whole bunch of secondary interests uh, two years ago. Um, so there's a lot that we've done. Uh, that's actually supposed to be a hedge on our, on our fund. So. So we run a company that is actually not just a Nigerian company. We've, we, we have uh, investments outside of the country, and, and, and to that extent, there's an aspiration to the highest possible, not just ethical, but corporate governance standards. Um, and, and I will say that um, uh, in terms of the role the board plays in how we, and the selection of the board is actually very important. These are all technical people. There's not one politician on our board. 
which has a downside because half the time I spend my time now doing the politics of having to convince members of the parliament about what we're doing. Uh, but the good news is that we actually have uh, people who are technically savvy on our board and, and who are, a whole bunch of them are US people as well. So to that extent, corporate governance is very, very important. So I will say that um, it is something that we probably spend more than half of our time making sure we get right. Make sure your processes are to the highest possible standards. Make sure your accountability, particularly your audit um, and, and transparency, is something that we take very, very uh, uh, serious views of. And so this is how we run NSIA, and this is how we plan to run all the vehicles we are, we are creating. And so many people came in and said, well, we don't want it to be Nigeria registered for many reasons, uh, which is fine. So we're open to registering them outside of the country as well, to the extent that we find a jurisdiction that is comfortable for you. Um, and we work together with the co-investment partners to create the processes and the governance that I think. Um, uh, so so I, I think that's all I can say on that subject. And it's something we spend a lot of time on. Um, in terms of equity upside, uh, no, we don't see ourselves as a Nigeria government vehicle, to be honest. Uh, we see ourselves like any other investment company. And, and to, the extent, to that extent, we'll take as long as it takes to negotiate the right commercial terms that work for us. Uh, the, the toll road, that toll bridge that we are, we, we are almost uh, completed negotiation got stuck because we insisted on, on, on a put call option agreement with the government um, that gives us a floor of 14% equity IRR, a cap of 16% equity IRR in dollars. Um, and negotiating that with the government was quite a strange, surreal experience because here I am sitting on the other side insisting I need a put call option agreement. I need this and I need that and I need that. And the minister was like, on whose side are you? I'm like, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the side of my co-investors. So the point though is, you know, that is something that I think um, uh, we, we insist on. Now, let me switch briefly to, to real estate. Um, so in terms of uh, the, let me, let me deal with the question of mortgage finance. It was quite shocking for me when I, we, we started working in real estate in Nigeria and realized that the country as a whole, 185 million people, 40 million households, had less than 100,000 mortgages. Uh, people save and save and save and then buy a house. Okay. And that's a moving target because inflation is eating away your savings. And so you're racing to try and buy something. And, and so it's, it's, it's quite uh, uh, remarkable that we've built that many units to start with. But the truth is, it's a problem for the economy because the creation of mortgages uh, was an issue. So one of the first investments we made was in something called the, the Nigeria Mortgage Refinancing Company. So we own 23% of that company. And the idea was to provide mortgage refinancing. It's been tough. Uh, because the other issue was the issue raised, which is title registration. Uh, in some states in Nigeria, the title registration can cost as much as 25% of the cost of the house. What? It doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I'm like, I, I sat and I said, what, where do you spend this money on? <laughs> <laughs> what, what does that mean? <laughs> so um, it shouldn't be more than 2%, to be honest. Uh, but 25% on what? Seriously, it, it's hot, it, it, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. And then we started going through state by state. Um, it's everything from the lack of proper geographical information system to the 
state governor has to sign every certificate of occupancy by himself, wow. <laughs> uh, which means you have to pay people. Um, and so it's, you know, this, this thing is... It's, it's, it's a mess of federalism, huh? No, it's incredible, we, we right? We understand it as So well. we went to, because Nigeria, very few people actually, I think very high, small handful of people actually own freehold land mm -hmm. in the country. Everyone owns a leasehold, 99-year leasehold and renewable. And, and so the governors are the ones who sign these things. And so we said we're going to have um, a standard on the writing stand, a, a common on the writing standard across the country, and an incentive to refinance in any state. The state government has to commit to bring in the cost of title and registration at time, in some cases from two years to three months. Take the cost down from 20, 25 percent to 10 percent and below. And so that incentive is working in some states. And so we're seeing about four or five states now compliant, and that's starting to make the creation of mortgages a lot easier. But it's a long way to go. Now, in terms of who you deal with in real estate, um, you know, this is the reason why I like my job. Um, it's very easy for me to walk into any state government and say, this is what we want. Um, and if you don't like, I go to the next state. Um, and the frankly, upside of federalism. Yeah, that's yes. the upside of federalism. Precisely. And if you don't, and to be honest, I don't have to do anything, frankly. So if you don't comply to the following, we wouldn't do it. And guess what? I have a big mouth. I'll tell everybody that this is how your state works. And, and so in some ways, it's, it's helping. But I also came to realize that many of the governors want things to happen in their states and had no idea what the overall cost of this inefficiency is to the average investor. And so there's a lot of work being done by Nigeria Mortgage Financing Company now in encouraging the states. But I, I am, I'm not... Um, I'm not uh, to be honest with you, I don't think the change will happen as quickly. A few states, it will. Lagos states, Nasarawa states, the FCT, um, you know, a handful of states, it will happen. Kaduna state now, there's a new dynamic governor in Kaduna state, who many of you know, Nasarawa Rufai, <laughs> who's changing things. You know, like literally comes in and says, there's a master plan, and you build on the master plan, the next day your house is demolished. Now, a bit of a, you know, a character, Nasri is a good friend of mine. <laughs> but the truth is, is there's enforcement of rules um, across the place. And so I'm hoping we'll get there. Um, but um, in terms of who and what gets on in real estate, we, to be honest, we haven't had that experience, uh, partly because we have the ability to stay above the fray. And, uh, and where we can help people who want to you know, bring equity and invest, we will do provide that service. You've got to convince Sula to come. She's been a long time thinking about Nigeria. You should come. You should come. <laughs> come to the NSIA and we'll, we'll, no, seriously though, but you should come. You should come. And part of it is because, you know, again, one of the things we try to do is we know our capital is not enough. It's small. But we also have built an organization that I think has credibility not just internally, but also outside of the country. And to that extent, we, we've, we've helped a lot of people make it easy for them to invest um, just by making sure that we make the right noises for them. Now, in terms of institutional structure for Greenfield, the one place where I have seen that done properly is in power. Yeah. Um, power Africa is very interesting, uh, but I haven't seen a huge amount of its influence in Nigeria, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that we will see. But a lot of the institutional reform that we have put in place in the country um, are now working. And, and what has changed between the last government and this government is that there is enough, enough bite to make those uh, institutional uh, uh, framework work. And in power, it, the process starts very simply by going to the National Electricity Regulatory Commission to get licensed. Uh, you obtain a license, the fees are not extraordinary, but you obtain a license. 
by showing a business plan. Um, that makes sense, showing a funding plan as well. You go to the Bulk Electricity Trader, which is an institution created to obtain a power, negotiate a power purchase agreement. The third stage most people are actually stuck in is in negotiating the sovereign guarantees that are necessary. Um, and we have also seen that guarantees are a big issue for the government, a big issue because it has its moral hazard issues as well. Um, and so the government is struggling to make sure they, they actually separate the real people from people who just want to transfer all the risks to the government. So one of the roles we have played is helping them you know, determine a proper risk metrics in making sure that the risk for the investor is transferable and then the government uh, is also uh, understands its risk. But the other thing we're doing is, um, and we announced this a while ago and that we're working on it and hopefully we should close it again within the next few months. We're creating something called the Nigeria Credit Enhancement Facility. Now, this is a facility that actually provides a wrap and an upgrade to, um, to certain infrastructure bonds that are raised. Now, it's not entirely a guarantee uh, to the extent of a sovereign guarantee, but it actually helps you make sure that your bonds are upgraded to the level that local pension funds will get involved and invest in your bonds. Now, what that does is over time, when you ask for a guarantee, what are you really looking for? You're looking to make sure that your assets are not expropriated. You're looking to make sure there's enough skill in the game from the country. Um, and what we plan to do with this is eventually make sure that the government doesn't have to underwrite and guarantee every single investment. The fact that we are there to provide a wrap for your bond, the fact that we're there as co-investors or our pension funds are there should be assuring enough for people. So this is how to solve it. Otherwise, everybody's going to line up at the Ministry of, of Finance asking for a sovereign guarantee, you're not going to get anything done. Yeah. You know? right. So we are looking for ways to solve this. Again, the downside of the vehicle we are creating is that it's actually very small because it's only capitalized to $300 million with the ability to provide a wrap for up to $1.5 billion. It's tiny. The country should be talking about being able to provide a wrap for $10, $15, $20 billion. Yeah. You know? but, but, but the truth is this. We want to do this and show that there is an institutional response to this. Capitalizing it in the future is a separate conversation. So we will just start with what we have at the moment. Um, and again, uh, I'm not going to call out the United States, but this has been largely su supported by the British Department for International Development. Um, you know, and I think it's a way where we think there's room for institutional participation in helping create such a vehicle. Because I think it starts to solve a problem. Because today, I go to the Ministry of Finance, there are at least about 50 to 70 different power projects asking for sovereign guarantee. The government doesn't want to do this. And it'll be more complex with the IMF. Precisely. And, and more complex now with the financing structure the country has. So how do you solve that? So, so yes, there's a lot of things baking at the NSIA, and hopefully that those things will start to come up. But again, it doesn't solve all the problems because it's still very small. Uh, but hopefully with enough support, we should be able to uh, yeah. address this. Does that answer your question? And I, thank you. And I think uh, uh, very well, uh, well taken the increased fur that's come in since Nigeria's historic democratic transition last year. And Mount Nasser is no stranger to our stage here. Yeah. So uh, uh, we know uh, what he's capable of. So it'll be very interesting to watch Kadoon in the next few years. Another, we'll take another round. Okay. Yeah. Tope, you had Tope, Tope one? Tope. And then Tope's for PNG. Good morning, Uche. Um, uh, nice to see you today. And thank you for uh, all the insights that you've been sharing. I just wanted to uh, pick on one point when you uh, mentioned the ways in which the Nigerian government is uh, trying to uh, raise revenue. And you mentioned that uh, taxes are 
are about 6% of GDP. Can you share some more insights into in which ways the government is looking at uh, leveraging taxes as a source of revenue? Is this via an increase in taxes or are we looking at other sources or you know, multiple levels of taxation? If you can just share some more light on that. Okay. Sure. Uh, we'll take a few more questions. I should also, just as a matter of uh, rules, uh, just uh, uh, emphasize that Uche is speaking today in his personal capacity, not as yeah. as a, a representative of the government. Just to uh, emphasize that in case. Anyone, uh, yeah, 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 here. Yeah, here. Katrina from the FT. Yeah. Go ahead. Thanks. I'm Katrina Manson. I'm a journalist. I'd love to ask uh, your prognosis on the refinery fertilizer situation because I know that there are very exciting plans to build a refinery that would answer all of the problems at the same time as trying to balance four state refineries that I think have a capacity of something like 5% or operating at 5% capacity at the moment. Now that uh, Dangote project does seem to be the solution but of course it's run into um, strife with, with foreign currency uh, requirements, what do you think is actually going to happen? What will be the solution? Will we, will we see it? I see. Okay. And then, yeah. My name is David Gashero from the Kenyan Embassy. Uh, my question is for Aubrey. Uh, my question is on Africa as a whole. Uh, you, you guys, when you started discussing, you talked about Morocco and there be uh, good examples that I had in Morocco. And Morocco happened to be the only country in Africa with an FTA. Uh, you as Atlantic Council organization, uh, what, what, uh, what, what process have you tried to advise the government, especially the USTR, in leveraging companies, uh, countries like East Africa, which are right now, I think at a point where they are ripe for an FTA, yeah. where you can go beyond uh, GSP programs right now, like AGOA, to, to be able to go to free trade on an infrastructure level yeah. to, 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 to facilitate inter-Africa trade. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Let, let, let's be, take that round, then we'll take an, okay. another round. And David, th thanks for that question. Let me uh, tee it up for Aubrey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, one of our recommendations is that we need to move. It's great. We renewed AGOA last year. But we have to move beyond it. Goa is a one-way unilateral preferential, uh, 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 preferential trade scheme uh, concessionary. We need to move to a negotiated two-way and move toward an FTA, uh, embracing certainly, ideally, at the, in the long term, all of Africa, but certainly short-term uh, uh, parts of Africa that preserve themselves. So, Patrick yeah, would no, offer. I mean, I think uh, Peter said it quite well. Um, there are efforts within USDR, as you know, and you're part of, uh, to discuss with the EAC as a whole a potential way, and also potentially with the Kenyans. And so I think there is some uh, question, confusion on whether it's going to be with the EAC or individual countries. Uh, there are also some who believe we should wait until the, that the tripartite agreement uh, on the free trade area that includes so many more countries um, that that should be the, the negotiating arm. So I don't think anyone disagrees with the idea that we're moving toward an FTA-type structures. I think the question is from, um, from the African perspective and from the U.S. perspective, what entity it makes the most sense? You know, should it be Kenya at uh, your market size or should it be East Africa as a whole at, with 120 million people? 
and what makes the most sense given the progression that's happening in East Africa towards economic integration. So I personally am a fan of the EAC approach, um, but uh, there are others who see, who would like to see a bigger entity and others who think it can move quicker with a smaller entity. So I think that's the back and forth that you all will have to go through with USTR. Um, sure. Okay, sure. I think yeah. Katrina had a, the, yeah. the yeah, refinery question. Yeah, yeah. I'll probably talk about the tax question yeah. first. Sure. And I talk about the, well, the tax thing is a, it's a collection issue. It's, it's not, there's no change to the tax code. It's actually very simple, to be honest. Um, it's a collection issue. Uh, three things have happened. One is um, Lagos State was very successful uh, in tax collection and tax revenue. And the head of the uh, tax services in Lagos State, uh, uh, William Fowler, has just been appointed the federal uh, uh, chairman of the Federal Land Revenue Service. And, and he's come up with some of the um, uh, processes uh, to include collection, including the hiring of consultants, uh, which I chuckle about because some of those people look at you and say, hmm, you drive a Rolls Royce. Now, your tax payment last year was X. How are you able to buy a Rolls Royce and you pay this amount of tax? Simple as that. And it worked in Lagos State. You know, people buy houses and they look at your house. Your house is worth $2 million, $3 million, but you declare an income of X. So how does that work? <laughs> so, so, so it's starting to, uh, this is what, what's happening in Lagos State. Um, and, uh, but also Lagosians, as they call themselves, started to see the benefit through improvement in road infrastructure, in street lights, which are, and a few other things. And people actually became more um, willing to participate in the payment of taxes. And so we're praying that he's able to replicate that success at the federal level. Um, there are discussions about increasing VAT. I'm not sure what the answer is going to be, because VAT is easier to collect than uh, income tax. Uh, but, but there's a lot being done by the government uh, here. Um, but I think the most important change has happened, which is changing the personnel and bringing the right caliber of chairman. Um, on the refinery project, um, I, I'm very, very excited about the Dangote project. Um, I also happen to know the other refineries in the country. Um, I, I actually used to work in one of them as a chemical engineer in 1989. So I do know these this plants very well. Um, these, were, these are plants that should be operating even now, but we went through a phase where there was no investment made. And as you very well know, many of you probably know, um, chemical uh, facilities uh, may not look like they work on precision engineering, but they actually do. Uh, because one little thing changes, you don't invest in a turbine, and then everything comes crashing down. The next thing you know, corrosion sets in, and you have to like, literally rip the whole place apart and fix, which is really where we are today. The Dangote refinery is 650,000 barrels. Uh, the government has also announced the investments that will bring the existing refineries to, with co-location of new refineries, get under 650,000 barrels. So over time, uh, you're looking at over a million barrels of, of uh, processing capability in a refinery. Now, personally, I don't think the short-term foreign currency issue should be a deterrent. And this, this goes back to the whole equity versus debt, right? Or even, you know, so anybody who wants to invest in these things, it takes you two years to make these investments. But do the math. If two years from now we're able to refine and produce every single product we need internally, 
it saves the country, from what I read this morning, and that number may be right, may be wrong, but from what I read this morning, it saves the country $1.8 billion a quarter um, in terms of what is spent. And this is not, think about it, this is $1.8 billion that could be used to shore up the uh, foreign reserves and make it easy to have liquidity you know, in, the, in the market where we can invest and take the money out. Uh, because it's not that difficult. Once you build a plant and maintain it, you know, most of your raw material is, is, is local. So, so the way I look at it is if we have the right amount of mix of equity and debt, we should be able to make this investment. Same with fertilizer. Uh, Fertilizer consumption in Nigeria is remarkably, um, it's, it's bizarrely one of the lowest I've seen in the world. I mean, I'll give you an example. In South Africa, fertilizer application in agricultural land is about 200 kilograms per hectare. In Nigeria, it's nine kilograms per hectare. So that just starts to tell you what needs to be done um, in a country. And this is why we have one harvest a year when we could have two harvests a year. And as a consequence, there is not much output. And we spend more money importing rice. We spend $2 billion, $3 billion a year importing rice. We spend, you know, so the numbers are just, you know, um, you don't even know where to start to describe these numbers. So, but, so if you want to make these investments, I think anybody looking at this as a typical project finance should look beyond this short-term issue. If you make these investments and you are now the person receiving $1.8 billion a quarter, which a country uses in terms of uh, importing refined products. That should help you make the money. The challenge is how do you fund it today? Yeah. Um, you need to have faith beyond now and the next two years to make these investments. The sad thing is that when you have faith in Nigeria, which is when oil prices are very high, nobody thinks about investing in a refinery at the time because <laughs> it just doesn't seem like it makes sense. But now that it makes sense, people don't want to make the investment. So it, it's about having the right type of capital to be honest with you, and this is back to my point about equity versus debt. Obviously, nobody's going to raise you know, $10 billion of equity, um, but with, with, with $4 or $5 billion uh, of the right kind of mix of equity, debt, mezzanine, you can actually start to make some real uh, changes in the country. We have seen a lot of interest, people who want to partner with us to make this happen. Um, and one of the things the government announced recently is that they are willing to allow people to co-locate new refineries on the same sites as the old refinery. Um, there's a process going through for that, so I really don't know how that is working out. But I would think that should make a lot of sense because you have access to depots and pipeline and jetties and power plants that were built for the old refineries that are still working, um, as opposed to having to reinvent these things. So that's one of the things the government is doing. The other thing where I'm telling people is, if, instead of co-locating, buy the land next door. You know, buy 100 hectares next door and build your own product, and you'll take advantage of the same level of infrastructure you know, for export, for imports of uh, raw materials. And, uh, and so, so I, I, think, um, I think those investments are necessary. If people have the right kind of uh, capital mix, it should be something that should work out. I don't think it should be a deterrent. And Aliko, Aliko is not somebody that gets deterred by things like this. He actually is getting more aggressive, you can see that, because in his mind, he's seen an opportunity you know, to get things at a price that uh, makes a lot of sense. And that's why you're hearing him opening new cement factories, petrochemical, fertilizer. Now, that's a guy who understands Nigeria. And the funny thing is, I knew Aliko from when he was a small time uh, commodity importer, rice and pasta, and today look at him. So anybody who can make that kind of bet on the country um, should be in a very good position. Okay. Here. 
thank you very much. Uh, my name is John Espinoza. I work with uh, TIA uh, Global Asset Management. And, uh, you know, as investors in, in Nigeria, um, you know, real money portfolio investors, you know, one of our main concerns is uh, foreign exchange risk and repatriation risk. So as an investor yourself, uh, Mochi, I'm curious, you know, how you would address those concerns, yeah. you know, especially for, for foreign investors where you were talking about value proposition, but at the end of the day, if you're anticipating a change in the currency regime or, you know, big depreciation, you know, that'll wipe out your returns. Sure. You know, secondly, in terms of your investment uh, fund, um, the share that is uh, offshore, I'm curious what that share is and, and the composition liquid versus illiquid, you know, investments. Uh, and last but not least, what you think, uh, and, and even how the, uh, you know, how policymakers and folks in, in government think about, um, you know, what's been a growing trend because of these foreign exchange, you know, difficulties around being excluded uh, from certain indices, uh, whether they're fixed income indices, which has already happened, and now I think there's some reports that, you know, Nigeria could potentially be taken off uh, the broad equity uh, indices on, in the frontier MSCI which would put a big dent into kind of the, the equity angle that, uh, sure. that you've been sure. proponing today. Sure. Thank you. We had one back there. Uh, good morning, my name is Alan Fields. I'm with the Abraz Group. Uh, we've a private equity firm invested in Africa. We recently raised a billion and a half dollars to invest uh, in two funds, one in North Africa and another one in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, my question is to Uche uh, regarding capitalization of NSIA going forward. Uh, most sovereign wealth funds uh, during the good times uh, allocated a portion of their revenue toward their sovereign wealth funds to mitigate some of the downturns. Uh, given the past decade in Nigeria and the oil boom, one would have expected uh, the sovereign wealth fund to be much larger. And so the question is going forward, uh, under Buhari, do you see any kind of uh, guidance or encouragement that additional revenues will be allocated to funding your sovereign wealth fund? Sure. Great question. And one, last one, right, gentlemen. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm from uh, Hornies, which is a British Virgin Islands law firm, so offshore. Um, I just wanted to comment on the co-invest uh, point because for the last 10 years I've focused on uh, inbound in investment into emerging markets. Um, one of the reasons for that is the BVI is actually a conduit for about you know, anywhere between 60 to $80 billion of foreign direct investment. Um, on co-investment, I mean, every deal we're looking at into an emerging market, you're looking at political risk, geographic risk, you know, there's a number of risks that are going to go on, one of which is going to be corporate risk. And rightly or wrongly, um, foreign investors looking at a target jurisdiction are perhaps not going to be comfortable with the corporate laws of the target jurisdiction or not going to be comfortable with the judiciary that's there. So quite frequently, I mean, how do you address that? So that was something I looked at and have used reasonably successfully is that BVI vehicles and the BVI court system and what have you can provide that, um, that corporate platform for foreign investors and done a number of successful deals with um, sort of development financial institutions where they go in, they co-invest alongside um, private investors. It's a joint venture vehicle or, you know, often there's a, a mixture of equity and debt. Um, and before everyone gets too excited, also just to address, that's not going to erode on that 6%, you know, 
tax revenue in emerging markets. And there's no, absolutely no reason these vehicles shouldn't, if they are operating in a local jurisdiction, why they shouldn't be taxed according to local law. Um, this is purely a corporate platform. And I just wanted to raise this because I think it, it's often a point that gets brushed aside. Um, and it is a legitimate benefit that can be used. Um, and it is where the offshore world adds value. Um, but I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there. Um, and people misunderstand that. Sure. Thanks. Okay. All right. <clears throat> um, okay. Let me um, just make my notes. Okay. Now, in terms of the, um, the currency uh, challenge for portfolio investors, um, you know, there's not really much I can say about that, to be honest, um, other than the fact that. Um, um, the government is doing what they can to make it easy for people to. Uh, this is a shock to the system, and you know people need to accept that for ten years or even more, it wasn't difficult. So the laws are there, but suddenly you wake up and uh, you haven't saved enough, and your major commodity has just collapsed, and we're going through uh, a process of um, cleaning up a lot of uh, malfeasance in the past. And so it's, it's, and the president has described this as a short-term situation. And so I, I having spent four, four, four years at, at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, I understand the challenge you face because, um, you know, being able to make sure that's liquidity and getting your money out and in easily is uh, something that is good for investors to, to want to rely on. Uh, right now is challenging, to be honest. But I've, I want to also believe that with some of the efforts being made by government through currency swaps and stuff like that, um, it should uh, try and alleviate this. Now, in terms of how you manage your risk uh, investing in Nigeria, where currency can wipe out most of your returns, I mean, I face the same challenge because I have 40% of my fund invested domestically, and I report to my shareholders in dollars. So. It's a, it's a matter of making sure we do two things. Hedging is very difficult. It's expensive. Uh, it's making sure that whatever we are targeting, there's enough support in terms of the margin we're anticipating. And hence, why am I focused on valuation and making sure we're buying assets at the right price? And, um, and also making sure there's enough structures built in to mitigate that risk. But is the risk of investing in emerging markets. You know, most of these currencies are one-way currencies. Yeah. You know, they always you know, go down. Just make sure there's enough you know, upside to, to avert that. The only currency I've seen recently uh, revise up was the one in Eritrea recently. Uh, so every once in a while it gets, um, uh, but there's not really much to be honest, I think I can add to this other than the fact that the government is trying very hard to make sure that uh, we don't continue to disappoint domestic invest, uh, foreign investors. Uh, it's an area they're very keen to, to make sure people feel comfortable. Now in terms of what we invest offshore, illiquid versus uh, liquid, there are three funds we run. Um, there's a stabilization fund, uh, which is 20% of our assets, and there's a future generations fund, which is 40% of our assets, and there's the Nigeria Infrastructure Fund, which is 40% of our assets. The Nigeria Infrastructure Fund invests locally. The two, first two funds, which is 60%, invest anywhere in any product. Um, the stabilization fund, which is 20%, is very liquid because the government can call me any moment and say, I need some money, and so you have to provide from there. There, we invested in mostly in um, true funds. Uh, strategic fixed income funds of various entities and uh, 
and uh, treasuries. It's, it's actually not supposed to earn a lot of money because it's actually quite liquid. Now, in terms of the future durations fund, uh, roughly 50% is, uh, is in liquid products. So here we have 25% in public equities, uh, two-thirds emerging market, now one-third developed markets. We have 25% in private equity, uh, two-thirds secondary interest, which we bought, and one-third primary private equity. We have 25% in hedge funds, um, various strategies to actually make sure we hedge our portfolio uh, uh, efficiently. And then the remaining bits is actually what we um, uh, look at, uh, uh, we describe as other diversifiers. And here we're looking at investing in leasing companies and investing. So we invested, like I mentioned, this uh, company, uh, Falco, which is an aircraft leasing business where, where we, we own stake in. Uh, we invested in real estate funds. We invested in a whole bunch of things that actually provide us immediate cash flow. So that's how that is structured. Um, and so I think overall what that means is roughly 20% of the fund that is invested offshore is uh, uh, in illiquid. Uh, but we try to make sure that there's enough cash coming in from them to make, give our shareholders comfort. That's correct. No, 20% overall. Overall, yeah. 20% overall um, is that. And now the domestic infrastructure fund is obviously liquid, right? And here we haven't done a huge amount. But the, uh, the asset allocation is on the website, you know, so you can always just pull that down and have a look. Uche, maybe I can jump in on the indices question. Please. Because uh, I know that we have to wrap up here and you have a very busy schedule. Um, on the indices, the MSCI one in particular, we've seen the press, they're doing a review uh, April 29th. I spoke to some folks yesterday on this issue. Um, it turns out that the press is making it into a much bigger issue than uh, there'll probably be some better reporting out coming out soon. Uh, it turns out that they're not thinking of removing, they're thinking of freezing it. So no new, no new pieces coming in. So this question of remove versus freeze is, is an important one. And um, I think not many people are too surprised given what JP Morgan did earlier. Um, and I, as, as Uche said, this is part of a short-term hurt that I don't think is uh, necessarily avoidable. I think the question is, as, NSC, as NSIA and others are putting in the framework for long-term and medium-term sustainability. So I'll let you take the other abrage and then the last sure, one. Sure, sure, sure. Now, in terms of the uh, capitalization of the NSIA, uh, I mean, I think um, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that it hasn't been uh, bigger than it is. Um, and there are three reasons for this. Uh, I'll probably just take some time to take you back in history. Uh, the federal structure of Nigeria actually makes it impossible for a vehicle like ours to exist. <laughs> it really does. The first page of the Constitution says all revenue that comes in must be shared across all three tiers of government. And so people just spend time, sit down around the table and say, right, we got $100 from crude oil sales. Here's your portion, here's your portion, here's your portion. And classic politicians, uh, they want to show monuments for their existence and haven't been in, in office. So this gets put into things across the country. So it just kept getting dissipated and dissipated. 2011, the government decides to put a legal structure around this. And they created this vehicle. So relative to the golden period when sovereign wealth funds were being created, which is you know, late 70s, early 80s, Nigeria didn't even create one until 2011 by law. It flew into opposition politics. The opposition politicians refused for the creation of this vehicle. When I was told I was going to take this job, I was told the government was going to seed it with a billion dollars and we're going to transfer $5 billion into it almost immediately. 
Um, the politics made it difficult, to be honest. I think I spent the first year wondering, what have I done? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and, and over time, we've overcome that. Um, even as difficult as it is, the government just gave us $250 million two months ago into the fund. So the, the important thing is um, the fund has proven to some extent, not to a large extent, uh, that it can be trusted. And the government has come around to saying, regardless of what happens, we're going to be disciplined to make sure we put some assets into this vehicle. So okay. as difficult as it is, this is probably the most unlikely scenario I expected. Uh, to have the government say, yes, $250 million, tiny as it is, but it's a, it's a nice step. And I'm hoping that subsequent CEOs can build on this and the organization can get bigger and bigger over time. The conversation we're having with government is, is also uh, to adopt the strategy of a TEMASEC or a CIC, which is not just cash transfers, it's yeah. actually asset transfers. That's interesting. It's actually an asset management company. These are very early conversations, but it has not been... Uh, it has actually been welcome. And it's everything from real estate, it's everything from sticks held by the government in other companies. So there's all manner of conversations being had about how do you recapitalize this business. And so cash may be difficult, but assets are available. Um, to the question of the co-invested vehicle, um, yes, the, the offshore vehicle is just purely for governance. The onshore vehicle will be taxed. Absolutely, it has to be taxed. Um, so that's not something we're trying to avoid. The essence of the offshore vehicle, um, which we'll own stake in the onshore vehicle, is to make sure that there's governance and, you know, many people don't want to be subject to Nigerian law, right? And so not being subject to Nigerian law is the reason why you create a Mauritius vehicle or a BVI vehicle. But once the vehicle is operating in the country, it will pay tax. There's no question about it. I mean, most of our co-investors, part of the reason why we haven't closed it right now is because everyone is calling you know, KPMG, Pricewaterhouse, trying to get tax advice. Um, and, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that this is something that uh, we should close soon. Well, thank you very much, Uche. You, uh, in particular, you uh, really get, uh, carried the burden of this and, that made, uh, and also enlightened, and so that made it all the more pleasant. Yeah, very easy. So thank you, uh, especially in this busy time period for you uh, here. And thank you to all of you for joining us uh, here at the Atlantic Council uh, and uh, look forward to having you back uh, in uh, additional uh, events in this series. So thank you. <laughs>